0: Right, well, we are going to now look at the Bible. So if you open up to Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others." When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they, had, they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on this people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you that these are your words to us. Help us to listen to them, Lord. Help us to understand what they mean and understand how they can impact, affect, change us so that we may be more like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you are the sort of person who listens to Christian podcasts, you may have heard of the wildly popular The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Now, our number of church. I know a number of church members are listening to it at the moment. It's it's really well produced. It's great storytelling. And it's a documentary about the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle over in the States. It was a mega church that enjoyed uh, exponential growth uh, in the early 2000s, only for it to dramatically implode in 2015. Now, Mars Hill was an incredibly resourced church. It was very media savvy. It was one of the first churches that uploaded its sermons and video of its sermons online. Um, It grew rapidly in its reach. It opened multiple campuses. Um, It became a multi-site church with thousands and thousands coming to the church and also following it around the world. Its central figure was a man called Mark Driscoll, who was a charismatic Bible teacher, um, a pastor who was influential known for the way he taught the Bible um, for his popularity particularly with Christian men um, but also for his kind of rough round the edges style now Mars Hill started as a a church plant in Seattle but it grew as I said into a multi-site church with global reach and Driscoll became a megastar however beneath all the growth of the church the slickness of its presentation and the many blessings enjoyed including many people genuinely coming to faith in the Lord Jesus and being baptized, despite all that, it had significant problems. There were growing concerns about Driscoll's leadership, accusations of intimidation and bullying. Staff who he considered a threat were often fired. In some cases, the church was told to shun them and their families, cut off all contact. There were questions about church finances. Some had been redirected to pay a company to buy multiple copies of Driscoll's book so he would get on the New York Times bestsellers list. The leadership became less accountable. More power was moved into the hands of fewer people. But it wasn't just about Driscoll and the leadership. There was also culture-wide issues. There were unhealthy expectations, particularly that were placed on women in the church in terms of what it looked like for them to serve their husbands. And many people who left the church struggled for a long time with ongoing psychological issues because of the way, because of that that culture and its impact on their marriages and, and family life. Multiple pressures plagued the church until Driscoll eventually resigned in 2015 whilst he was under investigation, and Mars Hill fell apart. Now, there are lots of lessons that we can learn from a church like Mars Hill and its story. But one lesson is this. Christian communities can have serious, serious problems, even if their structures are impressive. You can build your structures, but you can have poison still creeping into your community and relational life. Now this is our fifth week in Nehemiah, we've called the series Rebuild. And we've identified that this is a time for spiritual rebuilding here uh, at the church and and in our families. One of the things we're asking is, how can we at Grace Church work together for God's kingdom? And one of the things we've talked about is kind of serving and getting actual structures and ministries up in place. And we've been able to do that. We're meeting here back at the school. We've been able to um, put on our services. We've got kids' club and stuff running. Um, We've got our regular ministries up and and, and going kind of post-pandemic. It's going well, I would say. It's going well. The Lord is blessing us. We've got lots to be grateful for. But today's chapter in Nehemiah, along with that story from Mars Hill, serves as a bit of a reminder and a warning to us. It's easy for us as a church to get structures together whilst not facing deeper problems. We could have well-put-together Sunday services, lots of groups meeting midweek, but still have a very poor relational culture. We could look a bit like a shiny apple, but still have bits of rottenness inside. And Nehemiah speaks to that issue today. And if we want a healthy church inside and out, then we will listen to what he says. So firstly, the outrage of injustice. So just to recap, we're looking at the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt after a time of exile. Israelites are traveling from um, the Persian kingdom where they've been in exile back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has encouraged the people to come together and rebuild the city's walls from ruins. And they've done incredibly well. Despite real danger from their neighbors, um, opposition, which we looked at last week, they've been able to keep going. The, build, uh, the wall is being built. But this chapter comes as a bit of a surprise, what we've just read. In chapter 3, we saw, two chapters earlier, that all of these rites were coming together. It was a sign of unity. The walls were being built. Diverse people working together, side by side. But this chapter is a complete contrast to that, isn't it? What seemed like unity, what seemed like success as they were building their structures, actually underneath the surface there was deep division and even injustice going on. We see it in verse one, look down with me, verse one. The chapter begins, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. What's the issue? Well, there were a number of problems. A lot of the people were already in poverty, and there were lots of reasons for this. So it says in verse 3 that there was a famine. So it's harder to get crops to feed families. In verse 4, there's also a king's tax. So being in the Persian Empire meant you had to pay taxes to Artaxerxes, And those taxes were, um, they had very high rates. They were demanding on the people. And we should probably deal with the fact as well that building the wall would have been an extra pressure point for these people. You might have remembered, we said a couple of weeks ago, people were giving up their jobs for a while in order to help build the structure. So they were losing out on potential business um, money and therefore food. And so it would have been a huge step of faith for people to help and dig in, um, pull together in help, helping to build the walls. So it was a hard time for these rides. And you can see that some of the larger families couldn't afford to eat. So look at verse 2. We and our sons and daughters are numerous In order for us to eat and stay alive, we've got to get grain. But on top of all this, you have people who are making it worse. There are money lenders. And these are people who are in the community and taking advantage of the hardships that are happening. So they were willing to lend out money so that the Israelites could buy food. But they added interest rates that were exorbitant. And it left the poor unable to pay it back. So in verse 3, you see people in order to pay back, they're selling their land, they're liquidating their assets, their houses, their vineyards, their olive groves. Even worse than that, in order to pay back some of the debts, they are selling their own children into slavery. Look at the helplessness of it all. Verse 5, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others they've got no way of redeeming even their own children so the poor in israel are suffering oppression even from their own people now it was against god's law to lend to the poor in the community and to charge interest so listen to these words from leviticus chapter 25 if any of your poor israelites be, if any of your fellow israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you Help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest, or sell them food at a profit. God's law is just explicit. You don't charge interest to your fellow people, particularly not when they're poor. So these money lenders have broken an explicit command of God. And what is Nehemiah's reaction to all this? Well, he goes Judge Judy on them. Look at verse 7. He pulls together an assembly, he takes the moneylenders to court, and he presses charges publicly to these people. He says, verse 7, you are charging your own people interest. And he exposes just the madness of what's happening in this situation. Look at verse 8. As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. The Israelites had already been in slavery. Some of them had been enslaved and sent to um, foreign nations. Nehemiah had been working to bring people back. And what's happened? They've come back, only to be sold again, but to their own people. And just just to get a sense of the seriousness of what's happening in this chapter, just look at the emotions. Look at the emotions in the passage. Verse 1, it says there's an outcry. You know where it says that the Israelites are crying out elsewhere in the Bible? When they are in slavery in Egypt, they cry out against their Egyptian oppressors. So just think about that for a moment. The Israelites cried out against the oppression of the Egyptians back in Exodus. Now they're crying out once more because their own people are oppressing them. Another emotion, look at Nehemiah. He is very angry. He's incensed because it's unjust. It's a legitimate response. His response reflects the gravity of what's happening here. It's awful. And if there's a big principle that we get from this passage straight away, it's, it's simply this. There should not be a hint of injustice in God's people. Not a hint of it. It was true then and it's true today. You see, Jesus has called his people to be a haven and a refuge for each other. You know, being a Christian can be pretty difficult. But Jesus has given us for each other so that we can support each other, so we can help each other. We're supposed to be family, and Israel was supposed to be family as well. So when there's injustice inside the church, it's abominable. People are supposed to be able to flee to the church, not from it. Many of us have been shocked by seeing the report that's come out regarding the Catholic Church in France. There's an estimation that 330 million children over 70 years have been abused because of people in the Catholic Church. Clergy, priests, others. Not only that, there's a systemic cover-up. That's what's been happening so that people couldn't be brought to justice. What's our response to that? it's anger isn't it it's anger it's outrageous that a place where the Lord Jesus is named could be responsible for such things now one can perhaps easily throw stones at the Roman Catholic Church um, but there have been lots of instances of abuse in evangelical circles as well even in churches in this country churches that are not too different from ours quite similar actually And I'm really glad that we're talking about safeguarding today and that we have safeguarding policies. We need to take them seriously. We want to make sure everyone is protected. We want to root out any hint of abuse in this church. But a church culture doesn't have to be extreme to still be unjust. There are a thousand little ways in which we can exploit each other, and they might not you know, make it onto a safeguarding policy or the headlines of a newspaper. But they are failings of, how, of our duty to live up to what God calls us to. Here are a few. Are we like those Israelites who knew that they were needy in the community financially and yet we refused to help? Are we ones who who see needs in others in the church, but we, we just don't get our hands in our pockets? We're not willing to help out. That's a justice issue, according to the Bible. If those who are haves do not help out, the have nots in a church family. It's not just about money, though. Let's think about relationships. Do we refuse to forgive others? Do we harbor grudges against others, and we won't let them go? Do we have in our minds labels that we have branded other people we know with? Uh, labels that they really can't redeem themselves from. We're just going to keep them marked in this particular way in our minds. You know, that person's annoying. That person is selfish. That person is useless. Oh, that person is boring. Can these people redeem themselves from these judgments that we've made on them in our minds? unjust do you gossip about others to vent your frustration it's unjust and those of you who know the church well regulars would you welcome visitors would you go and 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 say hello and ensure that they feel um safe and in a, a warm warm welcoming environment those of us who are regular here we have a sort of relational power we know the space we we know many people we know what goes on here Do we use that to bring other people in or do we just stick to people we know and maybe don't pay that much attention to those who are new? To not welcome is to be unjust. And all of these things, they seem quite small, but they can work together to create a culture which is damaging. And who knows, it may be that people who've been on the receiving end of some of these behaviours have their own little outcry, even if it's silent. We have to be vigilant. Injustice in God's people is outrageous. It's an outrage. Well, moving on then. Secondly, what are the reasons to repent? The Reasons to repent or turn around and and, and change? Now, you might think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Particularly in Nehemiah's day. If you're exploiting the poor, that's a reason enough to change. But Nehemiah himself, in verse 9, he points to um, a few other reasons. Look at verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So he mentions two things, the fear of God and he mentions the reproach of our enemies. Now fearing God, that's a, a significant theme You may remember that it cropped up in the Leviticus passage that I read earlier. It's also used to describe Nehemiah himself later in verse 16, although the phrasing might be revering God. It's it's the same language. Now, to fear God in the Bible is is not about being terrified. It's not about cowering and kind of looking over your shoulder to see if God's going to fire a thunderbolt at you. That's not what it means. Rather, it means reverence. It, It means awe. It means respect. To fear God is to grasp who he is, and also to respond in the way you live appropriately. And what is God like? Well, for the Israelites, he was the one who set them free from slavery. He forgives debts. That's what God is like. Glenn Scrivener's put it like this. God is not like a debt collector banging on the door and demanding repayment. He's actually like a lender who knocks on your door and he says, look, you owe me a hundred grand, but I've canceled it. Let me buy you a drink. That's, that's what God, God is like. He forgives debts. He forgives sins. He's generous. So these money lenders have not feared God because they have not acted consistently with what God is actually like. Now, notice the implication there. How we treat others is an indication of how we treat God, okay? The horizontal relationships that we enjoy with each other reveal and indicate something about the vertical relationship that we have with God. Your treatment of another person is not just about you and them. You can't snap at someone, you can't gossip about someone, you can't withhold your resources from someone without that saying something about where you are with God. If we do those things, it shows that we don't revere God, doesn't it? How other, however, otherwise religious we may be. You know, though God has forgiven us, though He's been generous to us, we don't think that's the way to live because we don't that do that to others. And so, therefore, we do not respect God and His ways. So, we should fear God. That's what Nehemiah says. And the second reason. Change is that Nehemiah says that the nation is at risk of being taunted, taunted by her neighbors. Now, this is more about this is more than being about shame. Nehemiah is essentially saying this your witness is at stake, God's glory actually is at stake. You see, Israel's job was to be a light to the world. It's supposed to be a place where all nations would be blessed. See, Israel's job was to be like a huge billboard, a huge advert. People would look at it and they'd see what life with God was like. They'd see how they treat each other. They'd see that it was a society of justice and good things. They'd see um, the Israelites treating each other well and think, wow, I want in on that. That's what Israel's job was to be, a billboard. And so it's crucially important that Israel lives the life that it's called to that they would attract attract others in. Because if people exploit each other in Israel, well, then their witness is ruined. People are not attracted to God. Instead, they taunt his people. They mock him. And that's similar for us today as a church. You know, the reason we want to build a strong family community here is not just for ourselves, but for a watching world. It's for the sake of those outside the church and if they sense that we are not different if we're not distinct if we are just like everybody else well our witness to them is in tatters I've got a a friend who's come to church a number of times he's met a number of you actually and uh, perhaps one of my proudest moments as a friend was when he once said to me oh yeah yeah those people at church they're, they're good people aren't they they're good people and I know, yes, theological nuance, we're not technically good, I get it, but there's something um, warm and, yeah, heartwarming about the fact that there was something about us that my friend noticed that was distinct, that was attractive, there was something about the culture that won him over, and that, that, that's how it should be, and I wanted to see more of that in me <laughs> and in the rest of us. But, you know, if someone comes in, imagine if your friend who, who doesn't know Jesus came here and just saw... The effects of people gossiping or seeing someone who was obviously needy, but seeing a bunch of Christians who were quite smiley and polite, but didn't really do anything to help them. Or even as they, as a newcomer, didn't feel like they were loved or accepted, that people weren't really that interested in them. What does that say about our witness? Nothing good. Now, Nehemiah says it's the fear of God and the sake of other people, actually, that should lead them to change. He caused them to change, and and they do. Do you see that? The people promise that they are going to give back the vineyards, um, the houses that they've taken. They're going to pay back the interest. There's a 180 degree turn. And verse 13, the people say, "Amen," and they praise the Lord. That's what justice brings. Praise to God. And so Nehemiah's reasons should be our reasons. Do we want to honor God in this church? Do we want this church to be a place where people come and find life with Jesus attractive? Well, then the way we treat each other is absolutely crucial. If we want to respect God, if we want to be a light to um, the world around us, the city around us, then if we find any injustice, we need to repent of it. We need to say sorry. We need to change. That's what Nehemiah calls us to. Okay, well, we've talked about injustice and its consequences. Finally, then, what is the alternative? What's the alternative? So, final point here, burdens lifted. Burdens lifted. Now, in verses 14 to 19, the, the scene completely shifts. It shifts, actually, in time. So, Nehemiah here is looking back on his time as governor and he's reflecting years after this issue with poverty, actually. Um, it's perhaps like 5, 10, 12 years down the line. And is reporting about what it was like when he was a governor. And some commentators think he's trying to um, defend himself in some way from people who were laying uh, accusations at his door. And he's saying, look, this is how I, this is how I acted when I was, when I was governor. And when we see how Nehemiah acts, it's a picture of how God's people should behave. So he explains his practice. Um, So he says that um, as a governor, he had to regularly feed 150 people plus foreign dignitaries. That was his job. You know, he was put in charge of this area. And he had a particular duty to welcome people, um, to look after those who were serving beneath him in his office. the town hall or whatever, Um, and also foreign dignitaries would would come, and and he had to show hospitality to them. So he had to feed 150 people a day, plus visitors, and he had to give them a feast. Look at verse 18. Um, Each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. Okay, he's not getting a bulk order for Of subway sandwiches in for the for the office lunch, he he has to put on a lavish feast, so that he shows proper hospitality to those who are working with him. Now, the the passage says that he was given allowance from the governor, from the government. Sorry, um, to pay for all this food, he was allowed forty shekels of silver, which we presume is is quite a large amount. And Persia allowed him that; he had that um, right, but he didn't claim the tax. And this stands him out. It says, verse 15, you know, previous governors were more than happy to claim those expenses. We all know about expense scandals, don't we, in this country. But Nehemiah didn't claim his expenses, which means that he had to pay for that daily feast out of his own pocket. Now, isn't that striking? It's, it's a complete opposite of the kind of behavior that those rich moneylenders were doing at the beginning of the chapter. So the rich there were seeking their own comfort, gathering up resources by making others carry a crushing burden. And yet Nehemiah chooses to burden himself so that others are freed from the weight of that burden. And why does he do this? Well, he gives two reasons. Verse 18, the demands were heavy. The demands were heavy on the people. He knew that these people were already poor. They already had to pay tax to Artaxerxes. They were already struggling. He didn't want to weigh them down with another tax that would crush them. He had compassion on them. He cared about them. His heart went out to them when he saw the burdens that they were already carrying. And isn't that how the church should be? Full of people who have compassion for each other. A place where we're willing to lose out on some of our resources so that the needy are looked after. Where we're willing to lose out on our sense of superiority by choosing to forgive others and to let our grudges let rest. When we're willing to lose out on our comfort by welcoming new people in. See, this is what compassion does, and Nehemiah shows us how to do it. And the second reason he does it is verse 15. He says he has reverence for God. It's that fear of God that we mentioned earlier. He wants to honor God by being like him in the way he responds and treats others. So there's something important here. Nehemiah is a generous and a compassionate leader because God is a gracious and compassionate God. And we know that, don't we? That's the kind of message of the whole Bible, that God is gracious and compassionate. And we see, particularly in the New Testament, that God is very much concerned with his people not having burdens. There are those famous words, aren't they, of Jesus' in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus loves to lift burdens. And we need to experience that ourselves. You know, I'm conscious that um, this sermon may have come across a little bit heavy. There may be a bit of a weight. And those of us who perhaps feel um, convicted perhaps, of the way we've treated others and how we've shown little injustices to each other, we may be carrying burdens at the moment, just aware of how we've failed in so many ways. Well, Jesus offers rest even to you this morning. He's willing to carry the burden even of your guilt in this area or two. He took the burden on himself on the cross. He died for our sins And he offers forgiveness, even to the unjust. If we come to Jesus and ask forgiveness, we receive it. He wants us to find rest. But there are other kinds of burdens as well, different kinds of burdens. You know, one of the crazy things about the human heart is not just that we end up exploiting other people, but we actually end up exploiting ourselves Instead of letting Jesus be our governor, as it were, we run to other things and we let them kind of have power in our hearts. Things like control or or success or trying to seek other people's approval. And the problem is, like the previous governors before Nehemiah, all these things, they, they make big demands and they drive us hard. And we let them, we let them. I wonder wonder how many of you, at the moment, uh, have these inner voices that say things like this, I must be a competent parent or a competent employee. I must have control of my life. I must have this person's approval. I must not be a failure or show weakness. I must not be mediocre. Well, these governors, they tax us, don't they? And the rate is high. We have to work hard. It's all on us, and we never rest. Are you not tired of those burdens? Are you not weighed down beneath their crushing weight? Maybe we voted in the wrong governor in our hearts. For the Lord Jesus, He comes along to all of us and He says, Come to me, for my burden is easy and light. You don't have to prove yourself with Jesus. You don't have to get your CV in order to come to Him. He offers to lift those burdens, to be a ruler who, well, He just enables us to, to, to live a life that doesn't crush us, He gives rest. He takes the burdens on himself. He knows that we're weighed down with so many things. But the heaviest weights he's already carried. And perhaps if we're going to be a more just community, as we're we're seeking to rebuild, we need to just experience that load-lifting power of the Lord Jesus. What is it he says? Come to me. He wants to lift those burdens, if we'll let him. If we come to him, if we repent. And then as we keep building our church and we build our structures, we'll also have the relational um, strength as well, that, that, that community life where we're being just, where we're loving each other fully. The apple won't be rotten inside. Jesus gives us the power to, to be that people. Let's come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are a good God who lifts burdens, who doesn't place them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've explicitly told us that you, you wanna give us rest. You wanna lift the heaviness that hangs over us. Lord, we know that we are sinners. There's much injustice in our hearts, even if we don't express it to others, we carry it in our minds. We don't treat others as we should. We all do things that contribute to a negative church culture sometimes, even if it's subtle. Lord, please forgive us. Lift the the burdens of that guilt. And Lord, some of us are burdened down with other things. We run around trying to live our lives Trying to meet the demands that we place in our own hearts, that we, we can't meet them. They exert too much pressure on us. Lord Jesus, please forgive us and lift those burdens for us today. We ask for your forgiveness, and we ask for your help. And we thank you that your heart is such that you love to lift heavy weights. May each of us know that today, in your name. Amen.